Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. This is the show where I speak to aerospace pioneers about exciting new technologies that they are designing, developing, or researching. If you enjoy this or any of my previous conversations, then please consider heading over to Apple Podcasts or open your podcast player of choice, find this show, and leave a positive review. More than anything else, this helps to spread the word about the show because in that way we get recommended to more people. On that note, thank you very much to Apple Podcast user Nasco Thornet for leaving such a nice review this week. It honestly made my day when I read your kind words. Today's episode is sponsored by the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. SAMPI is a global professional society that provides educational opportunities on advanced materials and manufacturing processes and is a key facilitator for the advancement of aerospace engineering by enabling information exchange between aerospace companies. To find out how SAMPI can help you learn more about advanced materials and processes, visit SAMPI's website at nasampe.org or consider attending SAMPI 2018 Technical Conference and Expo in Long Beach, California. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Today's conversation features Mike Lawton, who is the founder and CEO of Oxford Space Systems. OSS is an award-winning space technology company that is developing a new generation of deployable space structures that are lighter, simpler, and cheaper than current products on the market. These deployable structures deploy antennas and solar panels on satellites orbiting Earth and are tricky to design because they need to package to a fraction of the deployed size and need to be as lightweight as possible. OSS's first product, the AstroTube Boom, was launched into space and deployed on a CubeSat in September 2016. This achievement set a new industry record in terms of development time, going from company formation to orbit in under 30 months. Besides the incredible engineering talent that Mike has assembled at OSS, he credits the agility of the company to the fast and lean design approach he learned at software companies in the dot-com boom era. I met Mike at the OSS design office to talk about how this design philosophy of new space companies differs from the bigger established firms, how origami, the Japanese art of folding, is being used to design more efficient, deployable structures, and his vision for the future of space commercialization. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Oxford Space Systems founder and CEO, Mike Lawton. So I'm, I'm here with Mike Lawton, who's the CEO and founder of Oxford Space Systems. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, so Mike, I will have introduced you a little bit at the, in the introduction of the episode, but why don't you tell the listeners a bit about your background, about yourself, and what you did before you started Oxford Space Systems? Uh, well, I think it's probably a cliched thing to say, but I've always been a bit of a sci-fi nut. So I grew up on a you know, diet of Doctor Who and Star Trek, and uh, I was always fascinated with taking things apart. So when a, a piano arrived at our house, the first thing I did was not play it, was kind of look inside, how did this magical thing work? So I quickly got a reputation for being the kid in the family that took the back off the TV and tinkered. So I think I showed an understanding or an interest in, in engineering from a really early stage, and uh, always thought, wouldn't it be great to become an astronaut? But of course, reality kicks in, so the closest mm -hmm. I think I can get is working in a high-tech environment. 
So I ended up studying engineering, uh, electrical and electronic engineering, got a degree uh, in that subject, and always ended up uh, working in high-end R&D environments, um, initially as a design engineer, then project manager, and then in, into management. Uh, so I've had a pretty eclectic career, actually. I've worked in a whole range of industries, believe it or not. I worked for the BBC at one oh, point. Wow. Um, I ran a series of, of bars for, for, for a guy who ran a chain of uh, bars and restaurants. So I learned how to deal with people uh, and understood the commerce of business. But then drifted back into engineering. I worked for a dot-com company that was making hardware that had the dubious reputation of being the highest value dot-com business mm. in Europe at that point in time. Uh, but then a spectacular implosion in 2003, which gave me a really quite interesting lesson in business. Just because you had a really neat bit of technology, if the commercials didn't stack up or if the market wasn't there, it's game over. Yeah. So that was in 2003. So rather than go and work for someone else, I thought, well, how difficult can it be to run your own business? <laughs> so I soon found out. So uh, the great thing about that particular company was I was working with some of the smartest guys I'd ever worked with, really bright engineers. So sold them the dream of starting our own engineering consultancy and mm -hmm. actually picked up some customers from the original business that, it, that we'd just been working for. So really kind of learned the ropes, cut my teeth on, on understanding the world of business. That ultimately then gave rise to two internal business units, which we then went and sought external financing for. So that was my first taste of the private equity investment community. So I actually built both those two businesses up into going concerns. One kind of sort of withered and died on, on the vine, the market kind of vaporized from that particular bit of technology. Uh, but the other one went on to actually sell technology internationally. Mm -hmm. And I ended up selling that business to, uh, to a lead customer. Uh, but through doing so, um, I became absolutely, well, physically exhausted. And my wife said it would be great if I could actually see you occasionally. Right. So why don't you get a proper job, was, was, was their words to me. So in around about, where are we, 2010, thereabouts, I ended up being, being sort of entrepreneur in residence for a space company called ABSL Space Products, very well known for its lithium-ion batteries going for spacecraft. So I was kind of hired to see how we could grow this business in a different direction uh, and hit on the idea of deployable structures. So the, um, the roots of Oxford Space Systems actually started with me sitting at a desk with a blank sheet of paper in someone else's business wow. uh, where I hit on, this, hit on the idea of, of, of deployable. So how am I sat here today rather than being there? Well, while I was working there and just getting these nascent ideas together, um, ABSL was acquired by a very large American battery company. So it didn't take a, a genius with an MBA from Harvard to work out that one battery company buying another battery company, perhaps deployables wouldn't actually fit mm -hmm. into that wider business model. So before the real value of what I was working on was, was, was understood, I managed to engineer an exit from ABSL, taking the intellectual property that I just started working on, very, very nascent stage, so no real commercial value at that point. Uh, I managed to exit and take a couple of team with me. So I managed to hit the ground running at the back end of 2013, essentially with a pre-packaged core of Oxford Space Systems, and then promptly very quickly triggered venture capital investment. Yeah, so venture capital funding is obviously widely available all over the world. So why is the UK such a great place to start a, a new space company? Uh, I think the UK actually offers a very unique in environment. Um, in fact, it's evidenced by uh, when I've been presenting in the US, I've actually had a couple of US entrepreneurs come up to me and say, we're really jealous of the UK environment. Uh, 
And it's linked to the fact that the government, the UK government, has something what it calls the Space Innovation and Growth Strategy, or the Space IGS. And it's stated many times that it actually wants to treble the size of the UK space economy, uh, end up you know, by 2030 employing 100,000 people and being worth kind of 40 billion plus uh, pounds to the UK economy. But if you want to treble the size of any sector, you can't actually look to the incumbents to treble in size. It's a bit like going to the high street and asking Walmart to treble in size. If they can't, they've reached critical mass. So where's that growth going to come from? It has to come from SMEs, entrepreneurs, and, and the startup community. And the government recognizes this. So in the UK, if you are a new space business, an entrepreneur, access to co-funding from the government purse is excellent. In fact, it's superb. And roughly 50 to even 75% of your R&D will be paid for by the government. Wow. With the caveat that you have credible co-funding to come in alongside, hence the VC money I've gone out to raise, and it has to be commercially focused and has to show a benefit to the UK economy. So to my knowledge, no other country in the world has that equivalent of, of Innovate UK and the UK government making this funding available. So if you're in the US, for instance, yes, you can go and access lots of VC money, but my God, you get diluted and you're going to use a lot of equity. Well, the other source of funding is to try and win contracts from NASA, but then you're back into the you know, very uh, long time horizons, bureaucracy and risk aversion. Whereas Innovate UK is designed specifically for the service of an entrepreneurial culture. Yeah, that sounds like a great ecosystem that you basically have the, t the two sides, the private side and the public sector meshing together to basically provide, provide funding to new, to new startups. And I think here where we are at, at Harwell, we've got the, the, cat, the sat satellite applications catapult. So you're not, only, you're not the only company that sits here. There's actually loads. When I was just walking <coughs> around, it's incredible how many different companies are around here. Yeah, you've got it. Exactly. So when people say, Mike, why are you in the UK? Why aren't you in the US or you know, in Asia seeking that money? I flip it the other way and say, well, why wouldn't I be in the UK? Because where we are here at Harwell, this is the UK space cluster. And in the four years that OSS has been on, on campus, it literally has grown from four or five space companies to over 80 wow. on campus today, with uh, just over 400 employees directly uh, employed in, in the space sector here on campus. Uh, and this is all new space. This is all entrepreneurial-focused uh, uh, companies. And of course, it's become this, this nexus. It's now attracting investors from across the globe to come and look at opportunities here. So it's become the self-reinforcing um, entity that we have on campus. And the building we're sat in here today, the Satellite Applications Catapult, this is a great example of the government uh, initiative uh, you know, being tan uh, you know, having tangible proof of it, of it working. So the SATAPS is um, essentially an entity designed to connect the dots in, in entrepreneurial new space. So it has great access to central government, Great access to the investment community to end customers and, and technology companies as well as academia. So its idea is to bring these together uh, and look to uh, seed commercially viable opportunities. You know, the clues in the name, satellite applications. So this is the applications of satellites to grow a sustainable uh, economy. Yeah, and so you just mentioned that you were basically, you took this idea of uh, deployable space structures. And this is basically, I guess, the, the core intellectual property of, of OSS or the, the, the technology that you're working on. What is, you know, the, these deployable space structures, what are they used for? What are the potential yeah. applications? And what is the differentiating factor of OSS? What makes you special yeah. to compare to traditional technology Absolutely. in that space? Well, every satellite that's ever been launched, including Sputnik, 
mm -hmm. first ever satellite, has had to deploy some form of structure. So Sputnik, for instance, that classic sort of large, shiny silver beach ball with four little antennas hanging mm -hmm. off the back, they simply sprung out uh, when Sputnik left the, the, the launch uh, shroud. Uh, if you wind forward to today, we have some very complex deployable structures. So things like large parabolic antennas, boom systems, and of course solar panels, the most familiar deployable structure most folks are familiar with. So there's actually a huge paraphernalia of things that we want to deploy from the side of the satellite. But they all share one thing in common. Uh, you can never be storage efficient enough, and you can never be light enough, mm -hmm. because as you know, getting into space is still incredibly expensive. So the key drivers to make a deployable structure commercially attractive, apart from its technical functionality, is how light and how storage efficient you can make the structure. So I thought, well, okay, how do we do something different? You know, what differentiates us? Um, so one of the key differentiators is the choice of materials uh, that OSS is, is bringing to market. And I actually have an example on the table in front of us. Um, works great, of course, on, on radio or a podcast. Right. But, so what I've got in front of me uh, essentially looks like uh, you know, a coil of, of black material. And this is our AstroTube flexible composite. So um, if I start to unwrap it, you can oh, wow. see what it does. So it looks like a you know, self-deploying kind of builder's tape measure. It's like a carpenter's tape, like a carpenter's tape. tape. Yeah. But made of carbon fibers. So a lot of our intellectual property is how we can stow uh, and uncurl this material without causing structural damage, because obviously normally carbon fiber will chatter. Mm -hmm. And then the next level of intellectual property is making this material robust enough to survive in the space environment. So obviously we're subjecting it to things like atomic oxygen and low Earth orbit, extremes of temperature, uh, uh, and of course um, radiation as well. Uh, so making this material robust enough and cheap enough that we can satisfy uh, deployable structures market is, is you know, the current focus of the business. So this is a material, and we turn this material into a range of products. So the most simplest product uh, that we've designed and developed that we currently have on orbit is our AstroTube Boom. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a, a boom system flying on a 3U CubeSat. And uniquely, what we can do is deploy and retract this material on orbit. And that's simply validating and proving to the world that we understand how to design, build, and model with mm -hmm. this material. So that's our most simplest form of deployment. And that was launched, I think, in November 2016 on that CubeSat. Yeah, that's right. So we've been on orbit um, just over 14 uh, months mm -hmm. on, on that mission. Uh, it's going really well. Uh, the great thing about that mission, uh, which attracted me to, to getting that, uh, that, that flight opportunity, was the high-definition camera and the fact that we could deploy into the field of view. Mm -hmm. So it meant we get those great money shots of our technology deployed on orbit with the Earth in the background which is great for the investment community because otherwise you're just sort of talking about it, but to be able to show a picture is fantastic. And yeah, people buy it with their eyes. Yeah, it's not abstract. It's, it's like not abstract. You've, you've got exactly. the picture there. So that's our most simplest product. Uh, and then the other extreme that we're working on uh, are large unfurlable antennas, which are required for anything from high-speed data comms right through to Earth observation. Uh, Using large aperture radar, uh, large aperture antennas for synthetic aperture radar uh, systems. So that's our most ambitious development. So we're a few years away from flight, but once again, the advantages that this material is giving us in terms of improving storage efficiency and reducing weight and cost are exactly those properties we'll have in our large unfurlable antennas. Right. I can also imagine that perhaps you know you talked about Sput Sputnik that perhaps this device is perhaps a lot more simple 
because it doesn't seem to have a lot of you know this uh, stowage and unstowage device or mechanism seems to be very simple there's not a lot of parts it just flops out right yeah, yeah. so is that an another advantage uh, that the simplicity seems to be really like a, a driving factor here yeah that's a great point i think one of the uh, perhaps the big misunderstandings or misnomers about space is people think it's all about complexity and technology mm -hmm. and that's the opposite space loves simplicity because that equals reliability so the more simple we can make these structures the less complex the less dependent on mechanisms for instance the more attractive they actually become to the industry. So having materials that, uh, in this particular case, for instance, can self-deploy, uh, actually are very, very attractive. In reality, for some of the more complex structures, yes, we do use mechanisms to control them. But once again, the, the, the principles of making them as simple as possible and having uh, very simple redundancy systems in there is something we're really focused on. Right. Well, I'll, we'll return to an another technology I'd like to, to talk about, the AstroHinge, in just a little while. But I just want to uh, go back to OSS, and because I, I think you've got a very unique way of, of, of running OSS, or the way that the design philosophy works in the company, which I think, given your background in, in kind of the dot-com era, and perhaps yeah. the kind of the Silicon Valley startup, that, that perhaps that is basically where your philosophy came from. But before we get there, could, would you define what this whole uh, community of new space means and how, how OSS is, is part of that new, new kind of uh, environment? Yeah, so I think the best way to describe new space is really the logical conclusion of coming together of availability of finance and the advancement in technology and the recognition there are commercial opportunities uh, above our atmosphere. So let's take those in turn. Uh, if we start with technology, you know, today I can hold up you know, my mobile phone. If 15 years ago I sat in front of you and told you the functionality I would be able to hold in my hand, you would think I'm insane. Yeah. Or you would say there's absolutely no way I could afford it. It would be many millions of dollars. So I think the mobile phone is a great tangible uh, bit of evidence showing how far mankind has come in in really sort of eking the limits of, of technology. But of course, mobile phones aren't unique. The advancements we've seen there can be applied to space technology. So the cost of assembling a very, very capable satellite that actually occupies a very small volume is now here. And literally, you can put together a very complex and capable satellite for the price of a family car. So it's gone from being the domain of nation states like 30 or 40 years ago to literally the domain of an individual. So the cost of the hardware has collapsed. Uh, the investment community, ever eager to find new ways to make money, uh, has was relatively slow coming to, to recognize space. But I would say in the last couple of years, certainly since we've been uh, running OSS, I've seen a, a, you know, an absolute flip. It's like someone's flipped a switch. It's gone from trying to get the investment community interested to now actually turning away investors, which is a very unusual, I think, and privileged position uh, to be in. So there's certainly readiness or availability of capital in the market. And then the opportunity, you know, what is the market uh, opportunity? Where, where are we going to make money? Uh, I think the idea of satellite data as a service um, either in its own right or augmenting additional services that already, already exist on the ground is a very exciting one. So a great example is, is high-resolution photography or video imagery for, from orbit. Uh, if you can go to Google Maps now, invariably you look at your house on Google Maps, chances are that picture is many months, if not years, mm -hmm. out of date. 
In fact, I checked yesterday, and a car I owned two years ago is still apparently parked on my drive. Right. <laughs> so therein lies an opportunity. So if someone, and there are many companies trying to do this, are able to provide near real-time imagery, you can imagine the commercial value of that. Uh, I'm sure when you go on holiday and you see that lovely um, uh, website for the hotel, wouldn't it be great if you could click in real time and see if they've actually finished building that swimming mm -hmm. pool? Absolutely. Is the beach as clean as they claim it is? Mm -hmm. Well, let's see what it was like this morning. So you can start to see where that value comes in. And of course, that's just one, one example of, of a service. There's many, many more that can be offered from space. So it's hard to argue against the commercial value uh, of this type of, of data. So all these pieces of the jigsaw have now come together. And the great opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors wanting to invest in them is the incumbents have a different mindset to an entrepreneur. So so-called old space has a very linear, ultra-risk-adverse approach to developing space technology. And I understand why, because you know historically, when a satellite cost tens if not hundreds of millions to make and took decades to come to fruition, of course, you're going to have to be risk adverse. There's a huge amount of money um, uh, at risk. But now, literally, with disposable electronics, you know, your mobile phone is, is a disposable item. Literally, we're, we're into the, uh, the realm of, of throwaway spacecraft, almost. And therefore, the approach that we historically took to develop technology, I don't think is relevant now. We need a different mindset. We can actually afford to take much higher risk. And rather than this uh, linear approach where we design everything to death before we let any engineer near a lab. This very highly linear, regimented approach doesn't actually fit with new space. So my approach at OSS is, what is the fastest possible way we can get to a, a working prototype? So as soon as my guys are having an incredible idea that we think is going to work, I want them in the lab. I want them not quite getting grease under their fingernails and have grease in space, mm -hmm. but you know, getting designs together and with the advent of 3D printing and rapid prototyping. We can very, very quickly get together concepts uh, and explore them. And then we backfill with the underlying traditional analysis. So let's get something working first and then backfill to get in the comfort zone of a potential operator. And it's that approach that we took to get our first product in space. And so doing so, uh, we believe we set a record for, for product development. Uh, and it's the same approach that we're applying to our other developments. So we're hoping to be able to set uh, another record in the next year or two. Right. Well, it, it's, it's clearly working. I think the statistics that I read is that the, the AstroTube was developed, I think, in just under 30 months or, or, or along that time frame. And it was basically a record setter. Yeah, we I'm went from aware. literally no company. Uh, so forming the company, blank sheet of paper, formulated uh, the material and then turned that material into a product and then got the product on orbit. Mm -hmm. So to my knowledge, no one has gone from not having a company to flying a product in space right. in, a, in a faster time than yeah. us. What, what I find really fascinating is this, this intersection of, of organizational culture and the, the hardware capabilities that you measured, uh, mentioned. So on one side, you have rapid prototyping, 3D printing, really kind yeah. of the maker community of just making stuff yeah. in the lab and then testing them before you're spending lots of time in, 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 de in design, yeah. basically. And on the other side, then you need the culture uh, from the founder, the CEO, maybe the people that are working for the company to have that mindset to basically actually take advantage of it. Now, I, I can see that this easily works very well, for example, at Oxford Space Systems, but why aren't the big companies jumping on this bandwagon? Is it perhaps that at some scale of a company, this no longer works, or is it just an entirely new mindset, kind of like a paradigm shift in engineering design? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Uh, and I think uh, the answer is, is twofold. When organizations reach a certain level of maturity uh, and size, the mindset changes. Invariably, the founders are no longer associated with that entity. You've gone from a startup development environment into an operational environment, and that actually attracts different types of mindset. And it's almost um, genuine innovation, innovation and disruption is almost discouraged in these large, uh, in, in these large entities. Um, because if you look at what large entities call uh, disruptive innovation, it isn't. It's actually incremental improvements. And most engineers, their brief is to reduce cost or reduce lead time. It's not about being genuinely disruptive. And the reason for that is large companies struggle to understand genuine disruption because you can imagine presenting a, a genuinely disruptive idea in the boardroom. Um, can I tell you what the market size is? Nope, because I'm going to create a market. Can I tell you how much it's going to cost to get to maturity? No, we're just starting this. So you can see how it's going to fail all the checks and balances that a typical board would, would assess a new idea. So they end up par paralyzing themselves by insisting on data that simply can't exist. So invariably, those type of genuine disruptions uh, never get financed. So it's all about incremental improvements. So what I'm trying to do uh, at OSS is, is allow the engineers that mind space to be genuinely disruptive in their thinking. And the only real rule I have with my guys is you can make mistakes, because actually if we're not making mistakes, we're not really pushing the envelope. We're not showing that we, we have an ap appetite for risk. The only real rule is don't make the same mistake twice, because then we haven't learned, have we? Yeah, absolutely. Whereas in large organizations, even failing is perhaps perceived as uh, a fatal blow to someone's career. Right. And I think that really does stifle genuine innovation. Yeah, yeah. I think even if we go back to the, the beginnings of the kind of airspace industry, 1903 with the Wright Flyer, back then you had lots of daredevils yeah. basically building their own contraptions in their sheds, flying them, and a lot of times dying at yeah, the same time, yeah. right? But then now we have Boeing and we have Airbus, yeah. and it's, there's been lots of consolidation basically. And I mean, there's talks of even more yeah. consolidation in terms of Boeing, perhaps buying Embraer and all these things. Yeah. So you've got bigger and bigger companies. And they, as you rightly pointed out, it's almost like this innovator's dilemma where you basically, in order to get a second stream of income, you have to kill something before. And then you've got all these checks and balances to try to Absolutely. find them, does this actually work? And then you overlay it with regulation as well. It just makes genuine innovation almost impossible. Uh, hence the reason the aircraft really hasn't changed in, right. in 40, 50 years. Yeah. And even getting a new design through is kind of almost seen as heresy. Yeah. Um, and I tell my guys, uh, look, you know, there's no one's life at risk here. Mm -hmm. It's a satellite. It's a damn CubeSat, for instance. Yeah. It is disposable hardware. Yeah. This is perhaps also a difference in, in your case that you have disposable hardware. I guess if an airliner crashes, there's Absolutely. a big media back yeah. backlash, and we don't want yeah. people to die, obviously. Yeah. So this is obviously perhaps a constraint in terms yeah. of the big, being the big, bigger companies. But how do you then see... You know, OSS is is successful, so it's. I presume the company will continue to grow. So, how do you maintain this culture mm. of innovate quickly, try yeah. things, iterate quickly as the company scales? How do you go about doing that? Well, we already have uh, an interesting um, challenge with the talent that we're attracting to the business. It's very easy to to attract uh, recent graduates. You know, their minds haven't been polluted by the old way of doing things. So it's very easy to get young, enthusiastic minds, but of course they lack experience. So what we need to do is balance the team 
uh, with uh, you know with some some gray hair and some guys with some battle scars. So we're actually getting some very interesting CVs sent from some of the very large names in the industry. Uh, very experienced guys approaching us saying, uh, you know, they're now bored in their careers. They feel they're having a very siloed, ultra risk adverse existence. They don't have visibility where this business is going. Uh, essentially, they become demotivated as engineers, uh, more paper shufflers rather than designers. So bringing in those very experienced, experienced guys that actually want to do something different it's about peeling back the shackles and allowing them to be innovative and creative. So you can see this sort of this dichotomy in their thinking there. Yeah, I want to be innovative in new space, but that's not the way how I operate. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the challenges we're working through at the moment. So the challenge for growing OSS is attracting more talent, but making sure we can get that right mindset in place in the business. It's not about developing uh, product and foregoing standards and trying to shortcut tests. It's not about that. We still subject all our technologies to the form of test regimes to make sure it's, it's ready for flight. What I want to do is build a team that has the mindset to get us to that point faster than has been done previously. Yeah, I think that's actually a very crucial point because if you think about the aerospace industry, one of the key differentiators to perhaps other industries is that we have something called the testing triangle where we start with small coupons, yeah. then sub-level scale yeah. components, and then we do a big test on the, yeah. the final product. And that's really where a lot of the statistical confidence in terms yeah. of the safety of the aircraft comes from. So you're basically saying that, of course, you're not, you're not trying to cut corners, right? You're still yeah. trying to manufacture and design, engineer a sound product, you're just trying to go about it in a slightly different way by iterating fastly and, and, and getting to, from A to B in a, in a quicker way, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in so-called new space, um, time to market is a critical component that needs to be dialed into the business plan. Yes, we could go, as you quite rightly said, you know, test token and maybe we do a breadboard. Okay, but how long is that going to take us? And if this antenna is worth, I don't know, say three million, and if we had it ready today, we would be achieving sales of X per month. Therefore, you, you end up with the, the notion of late cost to market. So say that could be, it's costing us a million dollars per month to get to market. Well, okay, if we can build an engineering qualification model for two million, then we're, we're accelerating the development. So rather than mess around with test tokens, if you really are confident to build a test token, well, let's go and build the damn EQM. Right, yeah. Because if we get it right, look how much we've just saved in terms of time to market. Yeah. So it's that type of approach we dial into into our analysis. You know, if we get it wrong, well then, okay, you've lost a couple of months in effect, and you're back to where you were with test token. Yeah, no, it's an absolutely fascinating topic, and I'm I'm really curious to see how these you know different business models, perhaps develop over the yeah. future, perhaps merge. But I want to shift gears a little bit and yep. talk a bit more about the technology. So, and one of the technologies that I'm really interested in is this this Astro Hinge uh, that I saw on your website, uh, and. The way that I, or the best analogy that I can think of for our listeners is kind of a drinking straw that as you bend it, at some point it starts to kink. And at that yeah. point, you then have a hinge at that kink. Now, that's obviously uh, not exactly what the technology looks like. It's an oversimplification, but I think it's a good, good mental model yeah. to have in mind. But tell us a little bit more about the Astro Hinge, your use of you yeah. know, new flexible materials okay. and what you're trying to do with Astro Hinge. Well, it's lucky we've got a bit of the material actually on, on the table here. So you can imagine this being one half of the Astro Hinge. So, um, if I, so what I'm holding is, is a deployed section of our Astro Tube material. If I then kink it in the middle, mm -hmm. You can see uh, it looks a bit like a bent builder's tape measure. So I've got a flat section uh, at the apex. And you can feel, well, I'll pass it over to you, you can feel the weight of the material. It's almost you know, yeah. feather light. Yeah, it's 
doesn't wear like anything. Uh, yeah. But if you just hold one end and let it go, it will naturally want to um, unfurl. Unfurl, yeah. and, and then it, it even clicks. The, so this is the interesting thing: it You've clicks exactly. in place, right? Exactly. So it's essentially a a very simple. The example you're holding is a very simple hinge system that wants to deploy, but then solidly locks into position. So unlike a spring, it's not going to you know, vibrate and wobble around. It literally is locked into a static position. So you can imagine if we had this bit of technology between the panels of, say, a solar array, the thing wants to deploy, but then the panel system will lock beautifully into place. So there's no locking mechanism. It's an inherent uh, property of the material itself. Yeah, and again, in terms of simplicity, so if I think about a normal hinge, like we've got two rotating cylinders, yeah. probably with some grease in the middle. There is none of that here. It's just a strip of carbon fiber in kind of like a semi-cylindrical shape that once you kink it, it has almost no bending yeah. stiffness. And then, but then once it's straight, it's very stiff. I mean, it's exactly. hard to bend yeah, at Exactly, all. yeah, it's locked itself into position. So for the Astra hinge itself, you can imagine two of these uh, opposing back to back. So two sections, one above the other. So literally you are solidly locked into place, yeah. but you still get the same kind of stored energy and the kinematic release of the material mm -hmm. when they're back to back. So how are you thinking of, of using this? I can, I can imagine that perhaps having a ray of this that maybe powers a boom that kind of has, has a number of these sections and kind of like a zigzag shape that then straighten yeah. out into a boom. Is that an application that you're Sounds like you're of? on the design team. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. So you can imagine a, a, a multi-panel array. So you've got the side of the satellite and maybe you've got three or four solar arrays that are kind of stacked in a concertina fashion. So each of those joints, you can have a, a series of these Astra hinges. So we're stripping out the, the cost of, of a motor system and even a much lighter alternative than a spring system. And because the material is tunable, we can tune it uh, just like a spring to have different levels of stored energy to achieve just the right level of kinematic performance the, uh, the satellite builder is looking for. Um, we also have a neat way of synchronizing the panels uh, as they deploy. Uh, one of the, the challenges of simple spring systems is if you, if you do the what we call multi-body dynamic analysis, actually saying which panel is going where at which point in time uh, is a challenge. Mm -hmm. But we have some IP on how we then synchronize the array as well. So to give the predictability the industry uh, needs. Right, and so you'd be using this to basically deploy solar panels, perhaps on a satellite or, or, or other devices? Yeah, it's basically a utility material. So anything that we want to push away from the side of the satellite, we could use either the AstroTube Boom or the Astra Hinge type technology. Yeah. yeah. All right, so I, I really recommend all our listeners to go on your website because there is a video of the Astro Hinge there. And it is, when you first see it, you're kind of like, this can't be true. Because, I mean, it's very, very simple, but then when you see it or when you play yeah. around with it, it obviously works, right? So it's, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we can sit and talk about it, but it's only when you actually see the, these structures in, in operation do you understand the full value. And, of course, the one thing that the listeners won't be able to do is actually feel how light these materials are. Right. Um, as you felt today, it's, uh, you know, it almost feels like the weight of a sheet of paper. It's incredibly yes. light material, which are all the properties we want for space, because, as you know, getting space is very expensive. So how do we strip out the mass of these, but without compromising the, the kinematic performance we're looking for? Right. And so I recently saw an article of yours uh, online, and you were talking about um, origami, the Japanese art of, of folding. How do you see or how do you envision origami coming into into uh, deployable structures. They seem to be entirely different topics, yet yeah. it seems to be working in space. <laughs> well, it comes back to my earlier comment about you can never be storage efficient enough. Um, and the great thing about origami 
is uh, it lends itself to very detailed mathematical analysis. And the one thing the space industry uh, is obsessed with is predictability and analysis. So uh, that was my kind of sort of spark of, uh, of brainwave. Okay, uh, what origami techniques can we bring to the sort of products that I want to develop? What, what can we leverage from understanding how you can fold structures into the smallest possible volume, but in a very predictable way? And, and origami is the obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, we were very lucky, or are very lucky, in as much as a world expert in origami that spends a lot of time putting in place the mathematical underpinnings of origami is 10 miles away from us. At Oxford University. At Oxford University, yeah. yeah. Professor Zong Yu has been a collaborator since the very early days of OSS. Uh, great relationship with Zong. He's one of the most enthusiastic guys I've ever met, an absolute joy um, to work with. Uh, and I'm actually working on an idea with Zong uh, at the moment, uh, which isn't in, in the public domain, so I won't say too much yet. But we believe it um, can actually be quite transformational for how we actually put satellites together, even. So the idea of taking origami, not just from the deployables, but how do we move that back into the satellite a little bit further? Right. Fascinating. I'll look forward to, to that innovation in the future. So um, looking into kind of the crystal ball of the future a little bit, how do you see OSS developing in the, in the next couple of years? Where do you want to take the company? So the next milestone that I want to achieve is having one of our uh, novel, very large deployable antennas uh, on orbit. Um, that would keep me and our investors very happy. Uh, if we achieve that, it means we'll be the first non-US company to achieve uh, a deployment on orbit of a large and fertile antenna. And that then has some very attractive commercials underpinning it. So that, that's the next key milestone. But what I want to do is um, uh, develop OSS uh, to have a global reputation as the leading provider of, of these novel deployable structures, and maybe even into satellite design itself. As I said, we've got some great ideas uh, along there, uh, along the way. But for me personally, it's about you know, having fun. You, know, you only live once. Right. Uh, I think I've got a dream job. I work with some of the brightest people I've ever worked with. Uh, and I do pinch myself occasionally that I'm doing origami in space, <laughs> which is really cool. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, you would never think that yeah. that, that, that is a possibility. Yeah. But yeah, as you bring different disciplines together, sometimes that's where basically at the intersection, that's where creativity, a lot of the times, that's where it is. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, we, we, you know, we, we were hearing about Elon Musk wanting to start a, saddle, uh, a colony on Mars. Yeah. We've talking about asteroid mining. I've seen articles about that in the media. So do you see in, in the maybe distant future a point where perhaps the world economy is much de as dependent on what happens in space as what happens inside our atmosphere? Or is that too far into the future to make a prediction about? You know, I think it's a great question. Uh, I think it's a very valid question. Yeah, you know, the one thing that mankind has shown it has a great capacity to do is to chew through the Earth's resources with unbelievable abandonment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we don't appear to be able to control our population or our consumption. Uh, and therefore, if we want to carry on uh, with the quality of life that we all uh, expect to have, then we've got to look beyond our atmosphere for the resources to sustain that. Uh, and already, well, we know uh, there's some very high-grade and very high-valuable materials floating around within our own solar system in, in, the, uh, in the asteroid belt. So, yeah, I think... Uh, you know what, it's, it's not just a nice to have, it's going to be essential if mankind wants to carry on uh, developing the way it's developing. So yeah, the idea of on-orbit uh, mining and on-orbit servicing, I think are very real. In fact, one of the projects we're actually negotiating at the moment is directly involved in that area. How can we come up with structures to enable the capturing 
uh, of these types of celestial bodies, uh, for instance. Um, so I think uh, I think one of the, the logical steps is um, uh, yeah, it's working close to the Earth's atmosphere uh, because uh, invariably if something goes wrong, you want to be able to get back. So for me, it makes sense from a human and a technical logical level to start taking our first steps close to Earth. So the idea of maybe on-orbit solar farms, which are permanently sunlit and transmitting energy back to, to the Earth mm -hmm. via the same microwave link, would seem a pretty obvious step um, to me. We hear eternally about the energy crisis on, on, uh, on Earth, so put your solar panels where they're sunlit 24 hours a day, and we have the technology to do that. I think we'll then see automated craft bringing very high value um, uh, asteroids and celestial bodies into low Earth orbit. So we'll put them in orbit around the Earth. That's a logical place to try and mine them. I don't think we're going to start mining and taking apart asteroids hundreds of millions of miles away. No. It just ain't going to happen. I think it's got to be done pretty close to Earth. I think a lot of it will still require a lot of human intelligence. So robotically operated um, craft on orbit with a you know, very, very quick uh, video link, I think are going to be the obvious ways to start taking apart and, and harvesting these materials. Yeah. And I mean, even in, in solar panels, when we were talking about origami, I, c I can imagine that if, you know, in terms of uh, exploiting origami, you could have solar panels that you could package to tiny oh, little fractions of this area yeah. and then unfurl. You got it exactly. Uh, with with uh, Elon demonstrating the Falcon 9 Heavy, imagine the size of stowed array you could fit inside that type of spacecraft. So actually getting very large structures uh, on orbit, uh, you know, it's not crazy thinking. You know, we have the technology to do that. In fact, the Japanese demonstrated uh, a microwave um, energy transmission system. So all the key elements exist. It just comes back to my earlier point, where's the, the business uh, proposition, where's the commercial viability of that? Um, and I think that will start to emerge the more and more uh, constraints we put on the Earth's resources. Right. No, it's been absolutely fascinating, Mike. Just just to finish, where would you like people to, to find uh, OSS online or find out more about, about, about yourself? Yeah, obviously, go to our website. Um, very simple web address, oxford.space. Just type that into any web browser, you'll find us. Uh, and as you said, there's plenty of stuff uh, online on us. We enjoy a very, very privileged position of being promoted by the UK Space Agency, so there's a lot of material uh, out there. And of course, if you're ever in the UK, and at the UK Space Cluster at Harwell, come and see us. Absolutely, yeah, so it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for taking the time, and it's been great to talk to you. Good talking to you too, thank you. Hey there, just before you head off, I highly recommend you check out the videos of the AstroTube and AstroHinge on the Oxford.space website. Also, if you want to learn more about the topics that Mike and I discussed, then you can find show notes at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. There you will also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the world-leading materials technology conference that SAMPI is organizing in Long Beach, California. And just as a quick reminder, if you can spare a minute, I would be super grateful if you could tell me on Apple Podcasts how you're liking the show. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and talk to you next time.